This episode is brought to you by Circle, the issuer of USDC, which hopefully, as you all know, is the preferred stablecoin of digital natives and crypto natives with over 1.5 million holders globally. You'll hear more about USDC later in the show. So one of the really interesting things is we believe culture is kind of this emergent property, but it's not. Culture is created. Culture is created by people who uh, create the content. It's created by people who monetize the content. It's created by people who own the algorithms that enable you to discover content. Like this idea that culture is somehow an emergent property is bullshit in, in many ways. There are emergent cultural movements from time to time. But the, the process of creating culture is a process very well studied. It's very influenced by psychology. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Uh, when Kane came on the show, uh, he called himself the benevolent dictator. Meltem today seems to be calling himself Degen Princess. Meltem, is that what we're uh, calling you today? I, I used this on Riverside um, a while ago, and I guess it's just... It stays. It sticks. It sticks. <laughs> yeah. It's a good, uh, it's a D-Gen princess. That's a good bear market name. Um, also a good bull market name. It's a good, it is a good bull market <laughs> it, name. It, it works in name. all markets. We're versatile. <laughs> yeah, no, we're versatile here. <laughs> yes. A lot of utility. A lot of utility. To that name. Um, Max right. utility. Exactly. There are two big things I want to talk about today. And then I have a feeling knowing you that this conversation will go in a bunch of different directions. Um, <laughs> you, uh, there's one idea, which is like, that you have um, that I've heard you talk about, which is like all we're doing, this is this this whole thing, all this has been in crypto is just a big story about market structure. And all this, all like all we're doing here is just building probably what maybe you would call like more efficient market structure, uh, new forms of market structure, market structure around things that have never had a market structure around them. So I wanna talk about that idea. And then you also have this um, idea around arbitraging culture. And uh, you more than maybe other people uh, that I know have been probably ahead, ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to arbitraging culture. So those are the two big things I want to talk about. You had this great piece on NFT microstructure that we'll put in the show notes that I would recommend people um, read. But maybe, Melton, if you could start out just like, what, what do you mean by this is, this has always been a story about market structure? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, I think when people first get into to the crypto space, crypto has its own syntax, its own language, and we love inventing new words and phrases and terms. Um, but at its core, what I think has always been so fascinating about taking assets and putting them on a global permissionless, credibly neutral settlement medium is um, basically the way that markets normally are, are constructed, right? Is you have people who want to buy and you have people who want to sell. These people need to find one another, figure out the price at which the trade will clear, the size in which the trade will clear, the trade happens. And then there's this whole workflow that happens once you match that allows the trade to actually get executed, the trade to get cleared, meaning both parties agree on settlement. Then the trade actually settles, which means assets swap hands. And then there's post-trade reconciliation. After the trade, you account for it, you do all your little paperwork, everyone's happy, trade is done. What's really interesting, and that's the world I operated in for my seven years, my career before crypto. And then when I came over into crypto, what was really cool, and at that time it was only Bitcoin, what was really cool about Bitcoin is you didn't have to construct any of those layers. Um, once you matched with someone, right, you could do everything on chain. 
And so one of the really cool things, if you think about market structure, is for the first time, we have all of these really interesting pardon protocols with different features, different attributes that allow us to effectively create really efficient automated markets um, using this underlying substrate. Um, and so the crypto story, in my view, is and has always been a market structure story. I think the challenge is, is a lot of people who are in crypto don't come from a markets background. So the way they understand it, the way they articulate it, um, it's like engineers discovering like markets and finance for the first time. It's not a, a criticism, but it's just if you're like an electrical engineer in comp sci, you're typically not, you know, trading markets. And if you're trading markets, you're typically not doing comp sci. There's a rare crossover of people who do do that. And those people, believe it or not, are the people who got into Bitcoin in 2012, 2013, and have been incredibly successful because they understood that market story. But I think one of the things I'm really passionate about is teaching people, helping people understand what market structure is and helping them understand what the implications of more efficient, more global, uniform market structure looks like, um, because the opportunity is absolutely massive. And everything, everything has a market. The other cool thing is we can give things that have implicit value, explicit value now, which is where the cultural capital component comes in. But we're constantly pricing things all, all day, right? Like your audience is deciding whether or not they want to listen to this podcast there's an implicit utility function calculation they're doing, right? Like everything has value to us, the activities that we as humans spend time on, our attention, the things we care about, the things we spend money on, they all have value. We now have this really cool capability to try to articulate that value in new ways and then apply this market structure to it. So again, <laughs> it all goes yeah, back yeah. to market structure, which I realize people are gonna get very tired of hearing me say the words market structure. I apologize in advance, <laughs> but it is really, it's, it's a market story. Yeah. It's an interesting point you bring up, Meltem. I'm curious to get your thoughts on the common criticism we hear is this is all speculation and <laughs> you know, why should NFTs be worth X and why should tokens be worth Y? Um, I'm, I'm curious, like, well, especially now in the bear market where things have come down a lot, this, we keep hearing this criticism over and over. What would you say to those folks that are very skeptical of just calling crypto just a pure speculative asset class, has no value, has no worth, um, and, and tying that in with market structure? Okay, I think this gets into a slightly different part of, of how markets work. Um, a lot of people, when I talk to them about crypto or what I do or what I'm excited about, they'll say, Meltem, that's great, but I live in the in the real world. I work with real assets and real companies. So there is, um, I think, Santi, to your point, this interesting perception or this interesting bias. Like a lot of people who got into investing read Benjamin Graham's The Value Investor, right? I grew up in the world of corporate finance. So <laughs> the way you evaluate a company is on the basis of balance sheet, cash flow, and income statement, right? Those are kind of your three holy grail documents in, in corporate finance. And so there is, I think, this really interesting, again, question about utility, particularly for people who operate in the world of commodities or equities or bonds or, or fixed income. They operate in this world where things have a very concrete defined function. They understand the utility. Um, and I think the challenge for them is, again, if we think about the field of corporate finance, if we think about the field of just economics and 
and investing more broadly. That is a science that is a discipline that has matured over the last 150, 200 years, arguably even before that, right? We think about Costa's theory of the firm. We think about all of these innovations and these fundamental truths that we now take for granted when it comes to the world of stock companies and understanding companies that generate cash flow. Crypto is, Bitcoin's 13 years old, <laughs> almost 14, 13 years old. Ethereum is about what, five years old, six years old. Um, and these new protocols are a couple of years old. So there is this new concept that, that is emerging. And I think with cultural capital, it's even harder, right? Like how do you value an audience? How do you value a TikTok? How do you value a piece of NFT art? How do you value a PFP? How do you value a meme. And so this idea of real versus unreal is very much in the eye of the beholder, because again, we have very subjective utility functions. What could be real, very useful to me, something I'm willing to spend money on is something that another person might look at and say, absolutely not, this is worth zero. So there is kind of this interesting belief that people outside crypto have that what they do is somehow more real. But I think, again, this is like a very subjective cognitive bias. And one of the most important things that we need to do as an industry is help dispel some of these notions that somehow markets are more or less relevant or more or less uh, credible just because the assets they trade in or the assets they deal with are well understood or not well understood. Again, if we look at the stock market, right, people talk about like, oh, well, I do real things. I'm like, well, look, in the last two, three years, we've had a number of companies who've gone to market who produce nothing of value, who are trading at 1500x forward PE price to earning multiples. And you're going to sit here and tell me that Bitcoin's not real. I have news for you, my friend. <laughs> I have news for you, my friend. <laughs> like the legitimacy and credibility of, of something is not bounded by your capacity to understand it. And again, a market gets created, Santi, when there are people who want to buy and people who want to sell. And so there are people who want to buy and people who want to sell. It could be something as dumb as, I don't know, what's the what's the latest meme coin? Oh, wow. Uh... Jesus, Didn't I've someone launch a time. horse coin? I mean, we're <laughs> talking. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say probably. Yeah. So, so again, um, you know, are those markets real? Well, they're very much real in the sense that there are buyers and there are sellers. There's a price at which those trades are clearing, and there's there's real money moving around. So again, I think we have to move away from this very dated idea that markets are defined by traditional assets that we can value using formulas and standard formats. Um, there are aspects of this that are going to take time to develop. But at the end of the day, like real and unreal is highly subjective. At the end of the day, back to markets, if there's a market for it, it's an asset. It might not be an asset you understand. It might not be an asset you value. But if there is a market for it, if people are buying and selling it, if there is volume, if trades are clearing, that is a market. And people who are early to emerging markets or new markets or new asset classes can extract a lot of value from those markets. And so I think a lot of people who dismiss crypto, who dismiss NFTs, who dismiss meme coins are missing the broader narrative. Now, does it create value for society? Also highly subjective, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, but these are, again, very difficult questions because they deal with people's individual utility functions as opposed to a societal utility function, right? Which even that is difficult to define if we look at the state of the world today and how different countries are prioritizing how they allocate or have historically allocated resources and the impact that has had on, on the global economy and on inflation. Well, can we actually talk about that for uh, the speculative 
impact on society because I, so I think um, when equities investors kind of uh, shit on Bitcoin or, or ETH or something like that, it, it's quite comical because when you look at a lot of, I mean, stocks used to be a function of the ability to vote and influence the company and uh, cash flow, right? Like in the sense that you would get dividends from the company. If you buy, if you buy Facebook stock, that is a purely speculative, speculative play. You have basically no voting rights and you have no, uh, you get no dividends. Um, Right, but also face, but Facebook stock, yeah, no, it doesn't trade purely on fundamentals, right? There is no set formula that says, okay, Facebook is going to trade at a fifteen x. Um, no, I agree multiple. with you. It's purely speculative in my mind. It's you don't. Right? Get, we you call don't it get like animal flows. spirits, yeah. right? That, yeah. That's the the classical articulation of it, like animal spirits. But it is all markets are speculative by their very nature. I I completely agree. I completely agree. So there used to be these baked out markets, uh, markets around commodities and companies with equities, yeah. right? Um, and, and I guess you would argue fixed, uh, fi fixed income as well. Then you got these things with like, with derivatives, um, where you have these, uh, which created a massive market on top of, on top mm -hmm. of those. We haven't been able to bet on culture though, in the way that people have been able to bet on equities and commodities and fixed income and things like that. What does like, why is that exciting to you to be able to arbitrage? Because the market is just making money in the market is just some sort of arbitrage usually. So, uh, yeah. or, or betting on something going up or betting on something going down. So like, why, why is that exciting to you? And like, what does that unlock? Yeah. So I do think we have ways that we historically have arbitraged culture, right? Or invested in culture. So to use the perfect example, Facebook, when Facebook acquired um, Instagram, right? And Instagram became part of that platform and Instagram started to grow as the primary platform for influencers, right? Who I liken to modern day shamans. Um, <laughs> those influencers, a good way to bet on their reach was potentially to buy meta stock, right? Another way, um, there's actually an influencer in Italy, the blonde salad, Shara Frani, who took herself public. She created a company. She took it public. She's one of the first influencers who has publicly traded stock. Um, you do this also when you buy collectibles, right? Um, a lot of billionaires, one of the assets they love to own is a sports franchise. Why? Because there's a limited number of sports franchises in the world, and they've gone up consistently in value year after year after year. So these markets for culture have existed for a very long time. And if you own pieces of culture, culture does create cash flows, which is one of the things people don't understand. It could be direct cash flows, which is what we're seeing through like the selling of merchandise or tickets or events. There are a lot of different, like in a way, block works, right? Like you sell crypto culture your channel is media, but you're effectively selling access to crypto culture and knowledge, which is a form of, of culture in my view. Um, and then you have more indirect ways of monetizing culture, which is through clout. And the crypto community is huge on clout because we're all on Twitter. We're, we love dopamine. We're addicted to it. It's why we fly around the world to, to conferences. It's why we spend a lot of time arguing about monkey pictures on the internet. Um, we, we love clout. And so clout is like an indirect way that you monetize culture and your proximity to culture. And so what's been really interesting to observe is we've gone through these sort of evolutions of the different ways that people monetize and capitalize culture. 
it started with collecting art, right? Then there were brands that started to build up IP. Um, they also capitalized on culture. Then with the advent of the internet, there were different companies that were facilitating cultural exchange of different types. And so those companies captured value as people saw those platforms as a way to sort of benefit from the monetization of internet culture, whether it's unique niche subcultures or more broader, like broad mainstream cultures, why people invest in media companies. We see it with the growth of um, investing in franchises and, and brands themselves. And now I think what we're seeing with this idea of Web3 or this new articulation of culture where people can issue tokens or PFP NFTs that allow people to belong to culture in a very public way, that is the next step in the monetization of culture. And each successive wave, I think, of technology innovation gives us new ways to monetize and make this cultural capital more tangible. Um, because at the end of the day, again, everything converges to, to markets. And so what we're doing effectively is we're finding more efficient ways to monetize this cultural capital. We're at iteration like six or seven of this. There will be many more iterations of this over time. And this is why I love reading sci-fi. You could watch Black Mirror. You could read sci-fi books. There are a lot of books that sort of talk about this, you know, having futures markets for your reputation, having markets for clout. Like these are these social scores, right? These are not new concepts. They've existed for a long time. It's just now we're at a point as society where we spend enough time online. We have the tools. We have the capabilities. And most importantly, I think we have the mindset and the understanding to actually articulate what this might look like and how this, this might work from a functional perspective which is kind of scary, but also exciting. <laughs> it depends yeah. on where you sit. Like, <laughs> Totally. I, I guess what you're saying is like, th there's like a, a lot of companies going back to your example of like, look, I mean, intangibles show up in the balance sheet in a very meaningful way for a lot of companies. Like Apple has like billions of dollars of intangibles. When you acquire a company, you Nike sponsors a bunch of athletes, they show up as intangibles now. And then they trickle through the income statement because, you know, they're sponsoring LeBron James and or Air Jordans have created this billions of dollars. So I guess what you're saying is you're now able to crystallize and perhaps have better price discovery on that intangible because all of a sudden you're connecting culture to these like untethered capital markets that we call crypto, where anyone can bid on if you melt them were to decide to do the DJ Princess you know, 10,000 PFP drops, not suggesting that you do, but if you were to do it, <laughs> then, then you can have perhaps is, is what you're saying is you can have a price on your brand today and in real time. And people can then speculate on that, on what you're doing now and in the future. And hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's sort of like ISAs are income sharing agreements, which were talked about a lot in crypto, maybe two or three years ago. And there are companies like Fairmint and others that are attempting to bring the ISA model into startups for founders and early employees. Um, but I, I do think, again, if you're able to spot cultural movements early and if there's a way for you to invest in them and own a piece of that cultural movement, which you can do now with crypto, right? I would argue meme coins are just cultural capital but in the most sort of degenerate format. Um, again, what it opens up is the ability to create new markets for this cultural capital. And at the end of the day, like this is all a very large markets story because all of a sudden you're dramatically lowering transaction costs, you're enabling more efficient price discovery, and you're enabling the formation of a very efficient capital market without the need 
to go out, get your contract listed at different brokerages, get traded on a bunch of different venues. There's one venue. There's one market. There's a massive pool of liquidity and it's really easy to access. All you need is a wallet, an internet connection, and the ability to open up a, a DEX and you have a market. That's that's incredibly powerful. We've never been able to spin up markets so efficiently before, right? Mm -hmm. Historically, it's been you have to create a physical market or you have to work with existing market venues or you have to create an entirely new market. If we look, for example, at collectibles, right? You have to go to StockX or you know one of these, these marketplaces to trade in these assets. But what if instead of going to StockX and actually physically trading in like the new Nike Nike Dunks, I could buy a speculative market on the Nike Dunks. That's what I used to do on Poly Market, right? You could uh, you could mm -hmm. bet on prices for hot new sneaker drops. Mm -hmm. So I think it was like the Nike Air Force Mochas that came out like maybe two years ago. I bet on what the second secondary market price would be, and so I was able to trade a derivative of a culture market completely in crypto and without any sort of tethering to the physical underlying. Hmm. And so, again, this is really a market structure and market efficiency story. And it sounds so boring and so unsexy, but like it's really, really exciting. I get really hyped up about markets. And if people ever want to get really excited about markets, um, there's a great uh, book. I think it's called Confessions of a Ticker Tape Operator that goes through like the early formation of the stock market and what it was like when people were still trading like physically on a floor, which when I started trading, I was trading over the phone. We were still doing voice brokering. It was super fucking exciting. You'd sit there. I had two handsets, sorry, talking into one. I had my Blackberry. You know, it was like, it was exciting. It was electric. You felt a lot <laughs> if you had to do deals on face to face over the phone. You'd be screaming at people. It was, it was really fun. Um, so yeah, I highly recommend that book. I promise it will get you really excited about markets. Or like if you're a nerd and you like watching Wall Street and sort of these old school 1980s, 1990s finance movies, like it's cool. It's really cool. It's really fun. <laughs> yeah. I want to get your take on on utility because it's something that is either it's the projects that emphasize or need that they need or they feel that they should always promise a lot of utility. Do we need to have utility? Uh, because clearly when you're betting, I mean, betting has been around for centuries. People like to do it. It's fun. People go to casinos. They do derivatives, whatever. Um, but I'm curious to get your thoughts on that because it's a common criticism of, of NFTs, of crypto. It's like, what's actually, and you mentioned this earlier, what's what's the value that's being created here? Yeah. Um, no, I think utility is one of these words. Utility and community are two of my least favorite words because they get thrown around haphazardly and they mean objectively nothing because utility is highly subjective, right? So if we look at an NFT, this is why also, by the way, the only NFT communities I've been really active in are Etherox, zero utility, no roadmap, just culture, and crypto dick butts, no utility, no roadmap, just pure culture. That's it. I think the issue with utility is what is the utility of owning a PFP JPEG? What is the utility of owning an art blocks piece of art? The utility is me flexing. The utility is me belonging to a community. The utility is me making a statement about who I am. It's like, why do people buy Rolexes? Why do people buy Mercedes? Why do people buy Birkin bags? 
my Birkin bag doesn't have utility. It's a handbag, right? I could buy one for five bucks. I could buy one for 50,000 bucks. It doesn't change the objective function of that item. But what it changes is my cultural capital and how I believe I'm perceived and how I present myself to the world. So I think a lot of these projects that are getting caught up in utility, like building metaverses or allowing you to own your IP, like there's a great debate the other day, say I own a board ape and I have the IP rights to my ape and I get my ape printed on a hoodie. What value does that hoodie have to anyone other than me? Zero dollars, right? I'm not going to be able to auction off a hoodie with a picture of an ape on it for hundreds or hundreds of thousands of dollars. So I think we have gotten into this trap of like, oh, we need utility. What's the utility? And it's like, no, that's the wrong question. The real question you should be asking is what if the, what is the persistent cultural value of this meme or of this art or of this idea that I'm a part of? right? For me, crypto dick butts are very simple. It's a dick. It's a butt. They're cute. They're funny. Dicks and butts will always be funny. We're all five-year-olds at heart. And so like, it will always be entertaining. Thondi is trying so hard to hold back the laugh and the smile right now. He's trying <laughs> now to listen, listen, I, you know, I collect very little, very few NFTs other than punks. I do have, I do have a bag of crypto dick butts. I, I, I haven't said this publicly, but... Wow! Well done, Santi. One D equals one B, Santi. There we go. I didn't. I didn't realize you knew math. Yeah, universal math. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> and so this is this to me is what's so interesting because all of this utility. I think the only thing it does is it creates expectations that actually lower the value of these projects, right? And punks are another great example, Santi. Like the only value of a punk is is pure flex. Like you are a tasteful motherfucker. Oh, why? Thank you. No, <laughs> uh, no I mean, I, I I do agree with you. It's it's sort of like uh, collecting Pokemon cards, and I mean, humans always want to differentiate. Now you can do it in a digital context with an immutable trace uh, in a 100%. sediment layer that, that you have certainty of it. Go try buying a, a watch in the secondary market. How do you know it's authentic? It's a pain in the ass. Yeah, but this is also, I think one of the things that will start to matter is the provenance of your NFT. So, right, like in five years from now, when you are the next Warren Buffett and everyone's like, oh my God, it's Lanty. Um, people will want to own your punk. Your punk will have more value because it was owned by you. Similarly, mm -hmm. one of the things I'm really excited about with Crypto Dick Butts is creating canonical, like globalized lore around Crypto Dick Butts, which I've been doing as our quote unquote high priestess. Which has been really fun. Um, but then also creating individualized lore around your dick butt. So there's a really cool company called Hype that allows you to create lore NFTs that you can attach to your NFT. And so if people start to write stories about like the personality of their dick butt, story of their dick butt, their traits, then there are dick butts that have really cool stories that could potentially have much more value than other dick butts simply because of this cultural cachet. And so these markets, yes, they're a bit strange. They don't immediately make sense. But I think if you live in the world of the internet and you understand how internet culture works, like I grew up on 4chan and something awful. Mm -hmm. This makes total sense to me. <laughs> Help them, do NFTs expand beyond, uh, do NFTs expand beyond like I think uh, for anyone who's in crypto in 2017, they remember the like NFTs for, uh, you know, like all uh, tickets, event tickets are going to be tokenized and then NFTs got big and everyone's like, oh, see, this is the solution. It's going to be, you know, t all these all these event tickets are going to turn into NFTs. And like when you hear those kind of ideas, do you 
kind of laugh and it like reminisce on the 2017 markets? Do you, are you like, oh yeah, that is the future or do like our NFTs just a, uh, uh, deeply efficient markets or hopefully soon to be deeply efficient markets around culture? Um, okay. So that's a, a complicated question. I think NFTs. So one, one of the things, so just talking briefly about the technical distinction between a fungible token, like an ERC 20 and a non-fungible token, like an ERC 721. I think one of the challenges with NFTs and a lot of, um, illiquid asset classes that are non-uniform, right? Like collectibles, like art, like wine, like real estate, is the moneyness function. So an ERC-20 token, because these assets are fungible, interchangeable for one another, they take on this property of moneyness, meaning they can be used as a store of value, although arguably no cryptocurrency has achieved store of value quite yet. Um, but primarily, they can be used as a means of exchange. The challenge with ERC-721s is because they're non-uniform, they don't have the same property of moneyness. They can't be used as a medium of exchange or unit of account because... NFTs have a, a wide price range. Real estate has a wide price range. So that's really the fundamental distinction is this property of, of moneyness. Um, so the, the challenge comes in for me, I think, when you you look at the nature of how you like value this, this moneyness or just do price discovery generally, um, with something like concert tickets or even like a Uniswap LP position that's an NFT, you're utilizing this property of uniqueness um, to basically put assets that are different on chain. Now people are doing with peer-to-peer -peer loans, which I think is pretty cool. Like each loan becomes its own unique asset that then can trade in the secondary market. Great. But these things are not imbued with cultural capital. These things are just different ways to represent existing financial assets. So I think there's a fundamental distinction between utilizing an ERC-721 to bring efficiency to a item, right, that already has sort of a defined value, like a concert ticket, has an expiry, right? It's kind of like a long dated call option where it increases in price as you get closer to the maturity date. And as of the maturity date, it expires worthless because the concert tickets exercise. I don't think people are going to trade like concert ticket stubs, although who knows? I've been surprised by weirder shit trading in the market. So who knows? But I think one of the, the fundamental distinctions you have to make is like, what, what are we trying to accomplish? And so leveraging the ERC-721 format to enable something to trade more efficiently is very different from actually creating a new type of asset and capturing esoteric value in a tangible way, if that makes sense. And that's like a very granular and very subjective distinction. I probably did not articulate that well, but to me, it's very different. There's like a very big difference between owning a concert ticket or owning um, box tickets to a Mets game and owning a crypto dick butt. Very different things. All right, everyone, time for a quick word from Circle and USDC. As a crypto user, you know the power of stable coins, dollar digital currencies that transcend borders, banking hours, and legacy financial rails. Well, Circle's USDC has quickly become one of the most trusted and widely used stable coins. It's simple. People use USDC because of its composability, its stability, and its reserve transparency. And USDC isn't just adopted by a few of us DeFi DGENs and DAOs and NFT marketplaces, crypto companies alike, they all leverage USDC to diversify their treasury, asset management, and ecosystem-wide composability. The adoption's clear. USDC's grown to more than $50 billion in circulation since launching in 2018. 
We all have and we all will continue to take shots on our favorite volatile crypto assets, obviously, but USDC is one of the easiest ways to store your funds in a stable asset that can be used to send value around the world almost instantly. It lowers the cost of cross-border payments. It integrates into the growing ecosystem of crypto apps. As a seamless, trusted dollar digital currency, USDC is a zero to one opportunity for the financial system. If you wanna learn more about USDC, I would recommend you check out the recently published Transparency Hub on circle.com. It's a great update to Circle's content on USDC. It outlines everything from links to their weekly reserve reports, monthly attestations, blog posts that are written by their exec team that highlight how and why USDC was built the way it is. Really recommend it. Just go to circle.com backslash transparency to access it. Now, let's get back to the show. Where do you, um, other than perhaps, I mean, I guess like specific to culture, what are you most excited about these days? Other than perhaps just pure NFT drops or, or maybe a project here or there that you're. I'm not that excited about by. NFTs. To be honest, I think most mm -hmm. NFT communities have zero substance um, because precisely for this reason, like people expect utility. And I think mm -hmm. one of the challenges for NFT communities and NFT projects that raise a lot of money, it's like, okay, you did your initial sale, you made a bunch of money, you sell a derivative, you make more money, you sell merch, you make more money, you sell tickets to an event, you make more money, but you're constantly monetizing the same community, right? And I think one of the really important things about great IP is like when Disney bought Marvel, right? They bought a universe of 5,000 characters. And I would argue that Stan Lee who created sort of the Stanley created Marvel, right? Um, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. He created the yeah. Marvel universe. Yeah, like yeah. he's the original Stanley, yeah. mastermind behind that. I only, like DC is the lesser metaverse in my view. Like this is a, a metaverse. It's an alternate universe. Um, brilliant. Right. All of these characters, all of this lore, all of these stories. When Disney bought that IP, they were able to monetize it in a variety of different ways, far beyond the core audience of people who would buy Marvel comic books. Right. So they created movies. The movies had spinoffs. They created merchandise. Like now they're selling out movie theaters. The most popular genre of movies over the last few years has been um, superhero movies. Sorry, I'm losing my AirPods. Superhero movies, right? They sell costumes. They sell swag. They have merch lines. You go to a theme park and you can have a whole Marvel section of the theme park. So a brand like Marvel is incredibly valuable because you can take that intellectual property and it's broadly extensible and you can sell it in a variety of different ways and monetize it in a variety of different ways. The challenge to me with NFTs and particularly a lot of these like 10,000 animal derivative collection PFPs is how do you build these concentric growing circles of monetization at different price points around these NFTs. Number one, the NFT is largely inaccessible, right? An NFT that costs $5,000 or one ETH even, right? Which right now is what, $1,300. That to people in crypto seems okay. But like the average person doesn't have $13 lying around to buy access <laughs> to, to culture, right? They have maybe like $13 lying around. Although in the new economic climate, maybe that's like closer to $5. So the ability for these products, so you have this community of 10,000 holders who are the insiders. How do you spread that culture and how do you monetize the spread of that culture outside of that initial core group? 
And that's what I'm not mm-hmm. seeing yet. And people are like, oh, we're going to make a show. Oh, we're going to do this. We're going to make a restaurant. We're going to make a theme park. And I'm like, great. I don't want to go to an ape theme theme park. I don't want to go to a doodles theme theme park because the culture mm-hmm. is not relevant to me. It's a very niche subculture for a very specific group of people. And it's simply too small. Right. So what we're really counting on is the ability for these communities and these projects to grow their cultural cachet and their cultural relevance. But the way that they're doing it is completely inaccessible to broader audience. And so Mm -hmm. to me, I'm just very skeptical of like how you take something that's as niche and esoteric as a PFP collection and turn it into a rich universe. To me, it kind of starts with the inverse, which is why I've really focused on lore and storytelling with Crypto Dick Butts, is you typically start with a great story and great characters and you work in the other direction. You don't start with characters and then say, okay, we're going to try to build culture and a story around these characters. It's generally not, mm-hmm. not done that way. So yeah. I don't know how it's going to shake out, but I would say like these early iterations, a lot of these projects will pivot into trying to provide infrastructure for other IP plays, right? But at the end of the day, as an IP asset, as an intellectual property asset, or as a subculture that can be monetized, through these ever-growing concentric circles at lower price points that reach more and more people and larger and larger audiences. I don't think I've seen any projects in the space that have had the ability to translate beyond these very small niche subgroups. There's a lot there that I want to unpack. And I guess the common umbrella there is IP. Um, and I'm curious to get your thoughts on on how you, on. we've seen various iterations like Creative Commons and then others that are more guarded and then others that have transitioned like Yuga Labs and Punks. I'm curious what you think of IP, if that really matters uh, when it comes to culture and, and encapsulating that, I guess, in this world. Uh, I'm just curious to get your general thoughts on, on IP. Yeah, I'm, I'm not a lawyer, so I'll preface anything I say yeah. by saying, like, I'm not the expert on this. I think Galaxy wrote a great research piece on the different licensing models for intellectual property mm-hmm. related to NFTs. I find IP loss so incredibly boring, but it's one of the things that makes America, like, the preferred place to operate a business is we have really strong rights, property rights. We have really strong intellectual property rights. And we have a court system that has demonstrated um, its willingness to, to defend and uphold those property rights and intellectual property rights. That being said, I, when I say the word that the term IP is probably a little bit of a, a misnomer. Um, the IP in this instance is like, what is the unique asset what is the unique thing these communities have right and to me it's in order for something to become culturally relevant memes are really important for the transmission of cultural ideas and i think one of the challenges with ip rights and we saw this with kevin rose and moonbirds right when people started creating moonbird derivatives and he was like i'm gonna sue the shit out of you and he got a bunch of the Moonbird derivatives delisted, I actually think that made Moonbirds less valuable. Because memes and imitation, right, is what makes the original more valuable. Why do people flex Rolexes so hard? It's because everyone wants one, but very few people can get them, right? So the imitators are actually making your item more valuable, right? Right. It's like you have Gucci and you have Yuchi <laughs> or yeah. Gucci. So um, yeah. I think there is sort of this question of, okay, how do you how do you actually make this culturally relevant and culturally valuable? And I think it's really difficult to do that if people can't replicate it and create memes around it and extend the meme. And today the most 
popular method for transmitting memes on crypto Twitter, right, is viral meme tweets. So if I can't viral meme tweet, if it's not easy to make funny memes out of what you're doing, like, Hmm. how do you make that scale, right? How do I transport my NFT into popular culture, like mimetic transmission, I need to create mimetic desire in people, whether that's through humor, serious cult identity, you know, I think moon painted brilliant job giving a bunch of celebrities bored apes because it made them more desirable. And then other people started buying them because they wanted to be relevant. But it's like, okay, now that you've given, you could give every celebrity in the world a bored ape. What do you do next? Mm-hmm. Yeah. How do you scale yeah, that, that to a million people, 10 million people, a billion people? Yeah, exactly. And that, that's where I was going more with IP, not so much like the, the different type of licenses, but more like striking that balance between having the community really bought in and feeling like they're a part of it versus being really guarded and monetizing it. Um, like I came around this company that's trying to like create like, it's called StoryDAO and they're trying to like kind of tra- transform the entertainment industry by allowing like amateur content creators to, to like bottoms up, create like really good films. Um, and I don't know, I, I, I don't know if like, I'm not an entertainment person, like I'm not an expert on it, but I'm like, I was cautious about like this idea of like allowing people to like, kind of like, okay, the community, but like create, can the community create really good content? Like that is going to be on Amazon or Netflix, or you're going to want to like stream is something that I'm like, not really sold on yet. Like, I'm curious, um, I ultimately think you need to have like really good experts and it's fairly centralized, like how you go about that process. Yeah. But, but even the use of the word community, right? Like communities require leadership and the leadership has to have vision, but also for culture to spread, people need to be able to take aspects of that culture and replicate it in a relevant way within their unique sub community that they're a part of for the idea to grow. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the way we transmit ideas, the mimetic transmission of ideas is very much in a digital format. It's internet driven. There are aspects of virality that we understand and there are aspects of virality that we don't understand. But at the end of the day, it's really about like, how do you make something as relevant as possible to as many different niches and subcommunities and demographic segments as, as possible? And that's where I feel like crypto really falls on its face. <laughs> Because what we're doing is not accessible. It's not relevant to a lot of people. I think NFTs definitely took that, like from tokens to NFTs. NFTs opened up a much wider aperture, particularly like sports, um, entertainment, media, I think are very fruitful avenues. But I think they're still inaccessible. Um, I'm curious to see what's going to happen with Solana NFTs. I think if we look at volumes on Solana NFTs and if we look at, you know, Magic Eden volumes now competing with OpenSea volumes, um, that's interesting because Solana NFTs are at a much lower price point. Transaction fees are much lower. I think generally they're not as elite as Ethereum NFTs, which I think can make it really attractive. Um, and again, what it, okay, what it goes back I, to. I have an idea on, so I, I actually, I think ETH, I think there's a world, I was talking to a 19 year old, like big, um, TikTok influencer and he, and he goes, he goes, he goes, ETH NFTs are boomer NFTs. He goes, Solana. He's like, why would anyone, he's like, we don't want those, those ETH, like those ETH boomer NFTs. We want Solana NFTs. And if you actually look at the, it's really hard to get like, um, age, like almost like web two data on, on crypto stuff, right? Like age and like where people live and stuff. But if you look at a lot of the people trading Solana NFTs, 
they're the it's the Gen Z, the TikTok crowd. It's not the maybe 30 and over like Instagram crowd. So. Yeah, it's because people don't have $13,000, $30,000, $130,000 lying around mm. to like buy these NFTs. That's what I think people in crypto don't get. It's like, that's a, that's a lot of fucking money. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. I have precisely like $30 left in my wallet after I pay rent and whatever other expenses I have. So I think, again, going back to market microstructure, just to nerd out for a moment, right? Market microstructure has really big implications for how things price, right? Supply and demand have really big implications for how things price. This idea of an NFT collection being exclusive is a concept that was sort of pioneered with um, these, these early drops. But like, why can't you have an NFT collection that has a million pieces that doesn't mint out immediately? And they're $3 each, they're $5 each. Yeah. Are there any like different pricing models? I think like Tyler Hobbs, the guy, he's really famous because he did like finances and a few others like like Artblock. He was experimenting with like like pay now, mint later. Um, I think we've seen like very basic forms of like just purchasing NFTs and like ten thousand seems to be like the number, the holy number. But to your point, it's not very accessible for mainstream adoption. Like we should be having a mindset of abundance, not scarcity, that has historically been like the center of crypto, which is scarcity drives value. I get it. But like if we're talking about like culture, well, culture spans billions. Or do you agree with that? Or would you say, well, no, like crypto has just taught us that you could be very successful and monetize and create a lot of value from these micro, micro culture communities or whatever micro culture cosms. And that's fine. We don't need to go to billions of people. Like not everyone affords a Birkin bag either. Right. But that's fine. But, that's what makes a Birkin bag a Birkin bag. Right. But then Target creates like a knockoff Kelly bag. So for 30 ba bucks, you can feel like you own that bag or you can feel like you have access to that style. Right. So, so again, what I think, um, I do think one of the things that crypto enables, it enables very niche sub communities to congregate and create and capitalize on cultural value, right? And a great example of that is um, what are the Milady makers, right? Yeah. These are like very niche. They are specific to very niche internet subculture, whether good or bad, that's, that's a different argument, but they're an offshoot of a very specific internet subculture and they've been able to monetize that. Where they go from here, like, I don't know. But yes, you can monetize that initial very small subculture. And yes, it could be profitable. But where the money actually is in all of this is in the market. <laughs> owning the market infrastructure, owning the interchange, owning the lending, owning the financialization, in my view, is where the opportunity lies. That's what I'm investing in. That's what I want to monetize. I buy NFTs for for fun. For me, it's like a helpful way to understand and contextualize what's happening. And in crypto, you learn by doing. So like I do these things. I try to create cults around NFTs because that's how I learn about culture and communities and just the different ways that you make something a, a meme. Um, but really where the, the value is, is in the underlying market infrastructure. <laughs> and so that's why I wrote this blog post on market microstructure for NFTs, because I'm like, yo, everyone's so obsessed with doing these NFT drops. Everyone's so obsessed with finding the next big IP play. 
I'm not an IP investor. I don't know shit about intellectual property. I know very little. What I understand is markets. The most profitable businesses in the world operate in interchange. They run markets, marketplaces, and underlying market infrastructure. So what I want to own is not the NFTs, although like those are for fun. Those, you know, according to what I find valuable and I find interesting are definitely fun and have a lot of personal value for me. But as an investor, what I want exposure to is the market microstructure that isn't just for PFP NFTs or art NFTs, but is for utility NFTs, game NFTs, whatever we want to represent as an NFT. I want to own the underlying market structure. I want to own the price discovery mechanisms. I want to own the venues where these things trade. I want to own the order books. I want to own the margining. I want to own the clearing. I want to own the financing side. And I want to own the settlement infrastructure. I want to own the post-trade reconciliation systems that people are using to integrate the accounting into their books. That is a business that I will invest in a hundred times a day, all day. That yeah. is what consistently makes money. Bull bear doesn't matter. The asset doesn't matter. It doesn't fucking matter what you trade. The marketplace makes money on interchange. When orders match and orders clear, we are mm. making money. And so I think, again, when you frame it from the lens of a venture investor, I just get very confused by venture investors who are buying specific game IP or specific NFT IP, and maybe I'm dumb. It's very possible. Or maybe I just don't get it, which is happens all the time. There are a lot of things I don't understand and probably yeah. will never understand. But what I understand and what I think always makes money, you look at human history, the marketplace. And so that's why I think like more entrepreneurs need to focus on market microstructure and building market structure. And I do think a lot of these NFT projects that raise tens, hundreds of millions of dollars will very quickly figure out like the infrastructure we're building to support our quote unquote community and provide them with quote unquote utility. That's actually where the opportunity is to create persistent cash flow. I was going to say, where do you see the most amount of opportunities? Obviously you have things like OpenSea. It seems to me like those fees are trending towards zero as you've seen in Binance and other exchanges. Where do you, where, where, one, what are the things of the stack that need to be built? particularly about NFTs and you're an investor in number and I, and I sort of share your same view. It's easier to bet on infrastructure than it is on a specific PFP, but what are the things that have been built that you think are not working that well and things that you're investing in or actively looking to invest in, in this kind of piece of the market stack, if you will. Yeah. I think one of the really cool things we're seeing is on the front end, on the exchange side, a lot of, um, NFT projects are building their own marketplaces. I think Bored Apes are going to build their own front-end marketplace. Punks already have their own marketplace, right? Um, Etherox have their own marketplace slash interface. They can only trade on the original website. But I think there is this trend of instead of having these sort of horizontal marketplaces that aggregate a bunch of stuff, having more verticalized infrastructure stacks that are specific to specific NFTs. Because again, if these things are just protocols, there's nothing that prevents me from just creating a front end to access a protocol and then branding it with my IP, right? And making it the sort of place where people can come to consume this entire market stack. So I do think there's an increasing trend of people shifting away from marketplaces to embedding marketplaces directly into their IP, into their community, into their own ecosystem. So this is sort of this interesting trust to uh, this interesting challenge of horizontal 
plays versus vertical plays. I do think one of the really cool things about blockchains, it's much easier to sort of vertically integrate the stack because you have these composable building blocks, right? So I think there's a lot of opportunity around protocols that aggregate on the front end. So price discovery and execution across sort of all of these global NFT projects. I think I was personally really excited about Solana wormhole, the idea that we could use Solana as potentially the execution layer for all this NFT trading and then use Ethereum as the settlement layer or wherever the NFT is issued as the settlement layer, right? Because you can do execution theoretically and anywhere. But I do think price discovery is a huge opportunity. Trade execution is a huge opportunity. So how do you enable people to basically just build a front end onto global liquidity protocol for NFTs? Hmm. That's super exciting. Nobody's tapped into that yet. And theoretically, if all of these are sort of compatible assets, you should be able to integrate them into sort of one interface. Um, Uniswap acquiring, did they acquire Gem or Genie? I always get this mixed up. Ge I do Genie. too. Genie, right? I think they acquired Genie. Yes, and OpenSea acquired was, Gem. It, the the yeah. history of that was so, I'm an investor in Blur, so it's sort of a competing thing, but yeah. Yeah. But like, yeah, I think it's really list. interesting that the leading decks acquired an aggregator and the leading NFT marketplace acquired an aggregator. Why? Because they're realizing like this moat they have doesn't exist long-term because market microstructure is highly mutable in crypto and highly mutable. Yeah. <laughs> Dexes have proven that like I have zero loyalty to Uniswap or one inch or any sort of Dex aggregator. It's where can I get the best mm -hmm. price execution best price, and where is yeah. the most liquidity, right? So like if the best liquidity mm -hmm. is on one inch, I'm going to go to one inch. If the best liquidity is on Uniswap, I'm going to go to Uniswap. NFTs, same thing, right? You see already yeah. these price dislocations between Luxrare, X2, Y2, and OpenSea. So I'm going to go to the yeah. market that has the best pricing. So I think there's a lot of opportunities on the aggregation side and on the liquidity side. I think on the margin side, we're still in the very early innings of lending primitives and margin as applied to NFTs. I also think um, this idea that NFTs are not fungible starting to get challenged. Like if it's not a grill, it's a floor, right? And so I do think a lot of NFTs um, will start to see more systematic uh, trading strategies applied to them. There's already a couple of people I've been talking to who are working on building arbitrage-driven NFT investing models. So effectively, these are like statistical arbitrage models, um, which by the way, that is how commodities became a huge market. That's how equities became huge markets is through these active strategies that rely on these systemic price dislocations, right? And so that can bring a lot of liquidity into NFTs. But in order for that to be possible, you need better capital efficiency. Sorry, I'm using mm -hmm. a lot of like nerd finance nerd terms, but um, you need to be able to get leverage on your, your capital, right? If I can only use the collateral I have, my return on equity, my return on capital in my book is very low. If I can borrow against it and use 10x the collateral I have, but trade it like quickly in real time, like what we saw with flash loans last summer in DeFi, then that all of a sudden allows me to increase my capital efficiency by multiple orders of magnitude, but it also allows me to trade a much higher volume. This is how traditional markets function. You can get like eight to nine X leverage traditionally crypto, not so, so easy yet. Um, although three arrows somehow mastered it <laughs> by lying and double pledging collateral, but you know, potato, potato. Um, and then on the settlement side, I think, um, 
the settlement side's pretty well figured out, but I think there are a lot of issues around post-trade reconciliation, which is like, how do we make it easier for people to figure out how to integrate NFTs into like all the accounting and bookkeeping that needs to happen? Not sexy, super important, especially for people who want to trade NFTs at scale and in size, like that step often is the most painful and it will preclude people from participating in these markets because your internal accounting team is going to be like, yo, fuck you. We're not doing this. <laughs> it's too painful. Yeah, I, and if, word for word, yo, fuck you. <laughs> no, literally, yeah. even like investing in venture, right? CoinShares, publicly listed company, trying to capture venture investments yeah. and on the balance sheet of publicly listed, listed company is really painful. Imagine trying to capture NFTs. You have to do mark-to-market pricing every quarter. It has to go through audit, right? And then you have to do like a Black-Scholes options pricing model to try to figure out an objective market value that takes into account a whole bunch of different factors. You can't just like type in the NFT, go to like a I don't know. What's the leading NFT pricing tool? Oh, if you have like Upshot, you have uh, a few others that are trying to do this. I've met like six or seven different teams. Aren't we you built a bot. Yeah, but we bought a we built yeah. a bot internally, right? It's basically just a machine learning algorithm where you incorporate a bunch of different data points. Mm-hmm. It took us. It took our quant team three yeah. weeks to build it. You can tweet at our bot. Yeah. I think yeah. it's called at CoinShares NFT AI. Mm-hmm. You can tweet at it. It'll give you a price for your NFT. Mm-hmm. What I'm hearing from you is you need, like, basically the... Okay, so if you go back to 20... <laughs> you need the whole market structure stack, and it needs to all yeah. fit together. Well, it seamlessly. feels like we just built that for, for the ERC-20. <laughs> it's like the last five years is like, you know, everyone's trying to build derivatives, options markets, uh, used to just be able to buy Bitcoin on Coinbase. Then you could buy it and sell Bitcoin on Coinbase. Then you could buy and sell Bitcoin and ETH on Coinbase. Then 2017, you get all the exchanges. Then you start getting, like... Uh, the lend and borrow platform, uh, like lend and borrow platforms, you start getting like the genesis of the world, the blockfies of the world. Uh, yeah. You get the, the derivatives, uh, then you get start getting derivatives, folks. Today, all you have is like to trade NFTs is OpenSea. Um, so it feels no, like you I have mean, Magic Eden. Ma- okay, <laughs> like you have a couple of you basically have what are the equivalent to spot exchanges from 2017. Yeah, um, that's a, maybe a better way to say it. But what it sounds like what you're saying is. The, spa- the NFT trading market is going to get institutionalized as we get better price discovery, RFQ at scale, trade execution, uh, like Pseudoswap was working on this, which was really cool, like margin and clearing. Uh, yeah, Pseudoswap has like some, some structural issues because on the pricing side, like the way prices update on Pseudoswap is problematic for like the way that prices yeah. tend to move in NFT markets. But yeah, I- again, like this entire market infrastructure that we've created. And I think the examples we use, by the way, are around centralized financial infrastructure, right? Like fully custodial centralized trading platforms. I think even on the DeFi side, like we don't even have a peer-to-peer lending order book yet. Yeah. Lending in in DeFi is done through lending pools, which in five years, I think will be a relic of the past because it's completely nonsensical. Let, Let me ask the real middle of the bell curve question then, which is, okay, First 45 minutes of this conversation, all about culture. NFTs are betting on culture. <laughs> and okay, we're building these, like, I'd call them like NFT pro markets or like institutional NFT markets. Funds will finally be able to come in in size. You're not just like sweeping a floor on Genie anymore. Yeah, we're, that... building, we're building vertically integrated NFT markets that enable professional traders to participate. Okay, so professional traders come into this market for the first time. Does that kill the culture side of things? And again, I'm sure that's a real middle of the bell curve question there. But. No. Okay. Here. Okay. Here's. Uh, 
This is the crazy part. Okay. (laughs) This is either like, this is very left of the bell curve, I think. Or maybe right of the bell curve or maybe. But it ain't, but it ain't in the middle. No, we try to <laughs> not do mid. I, I, no, I, nothing is ever in the, nothing is ever in the middle when it comes with DJ and princes. No, we don't do middle. I only do extremely, do extremely left of the bell curve or very far right, hopefully. We try not to do middling. Yeah. Middling you find is, yourself in the middle, you always go left. That's always the middle. Yeah, turn left, sharp turn left. Uh, I try not to middle. I have found middling greatly reduces my joy in life, and it's also not profitable. Um, (laughs) Good call. Um, (laughs) Okay, here's what's really cool. So one of the really interesting things is we believe culture is kind of this emergent property, but it's not. Culture is created. Culture is created by people who uh, create the content. It's created by people who monetize the content. It's created by people who own the algorithms that enable you to discover content. Like this idea that culture is somehow an emergent property is bullshit in, in many ways. There are emergent cultural movements from time to time, but that the process of creating culture is a process very well studied. It's very influenced by psychology. There's a great book called... Uh, the alchemy it's called alchemy i think and it's about like how to market products basically in a culture driven way like culture creation is a science also by the way financial firms do this like what makes a stock hot versus not hot where this there's whole cottage industry that's now become a very professionalized industry of professional stock pickers financial media fintwit finfluencers now there's these these communities that have done that at scale, like Wall Street Bats was sort of one cultural articulation of that. But there is a whole industry in every sort of vertical you look at, right? Whether it's equities, whether it's art, whether it's NFTs, whether it's tokens, there is a whole industry that exists around culture creation, right? And creation of trends and the manufacturing of that. So what's really cool here is we can actually start to use markets and financial capital to influence cultural capital and vice versa, right? The two are like intrinsically linked and related. It's just we're making that linkage much more explicit now. But that has always been the case. It's just that we don't talk about it. But that's how culture gets created. That's how influence is created. The reason you want to own a Rolex is because you're bombarded by both direct and indirect messaging and advertising that you should own one if you are a person of, of culture, right? The reason you want to own a crypto dick butt and the reason both of you own crypto dick butts is because you have been uh, led to believe both through the financial capital created by crypto dick butts as well as the really incredible culture created by crypto dick butts that 1D equals 1B is a universal mm-hmm. mat- mathematical truth. And, you know, not owning a dick butt would basically make you middle of the bell curve. <laughs> Stephen Hawking would definitely have a dick butt based on this uh, common principle. Yeah. 100%. Uh, last, last question for me, because we are, it seems like, in a bear market. Well, we definitely are in a bear market in crypto. Um, you talk about, like, in your last comment around dick butts, there is a phenomenon where if you make money on it, then you become more vested and then, you know, it's great. You know, it, it does add to this culture element, I think. Um, and when things collapse and, you know, it's not fun to see in the asset. Now you have like a real time price ticker on culture. And I'm not sure that's a good thing. I, I'm sort of like ambivalent. I'm just neutral on this point. 
but when we talk about like should artists like we we had coop talking about music nfts and the question to him and i'll ask you is can this backfire on artists because if you all of a sudden are selling music nfts and that music nft that someone spends all of a sudden collapses in value in this market environment are you going to lose all your fans and should we be putting a price on culture a <laughs> real-time price of degens on culture whereas sometimes sometimes it's better to think that like you're Picasso, that you didn't think of anything, all of a sudden accrued a lot of value, but you didn't realize that until a hundred years later. And that was fine. Okay. But I think what the concern you're articulating, Santi, is one that's sort of a moot point by what I said earlier. All of the things that you are culture were created by people with capital and influence. So what you're consuming that you believe is organic culture in most instances is manufactured whether explicitly or in a more organic way, like all culture is manufactured, all memes are manufactured. Like if you go back to the 1930s, you read Bernays' propaganda, you pick up on a lot of these elements, the things that become trends, things that are cool, the things that are taste tasteful. Like there's someone somewhere profiting off of that who's directly working to influence that culture. The issue is today, this happens behind closed doors. And as a creator, it's something that you have very little access to unless you have the right relationships, unless you have the right people, the right access. Um, and so what this does, and I think this is one of the things Coop and I have discussed a lot because I still don't understand music NFTs, but I love talking to him because he's so patient and trying to explain to my very small brain <laughs> how this all works what i think is really cool about it is for the first time we're making this linkage between culture financial capital and influence influence very explicit and we're enabling people of all types to utilize these tools to create and influence culture so what we're doing is instead of having you know 10 culture creators the internet you know enabled us to go from having five culture creators you know disney Pixar or whatever, name your favorite cultural brand creators, mm -hmm. to having now hundreds, if not thousands, if not tens and hundreds of thousands of influencers who can create and influence culture, right? And so you have a much broader set of, of opportunities and you have much more ability for creators to directly influence culture because they now have this channel to speak directly to their audience. The next step is we are going to give the creation tools and distribution mechanisms and the market tools, by the way, directly to culture creators. And so each successive step opens up the aperture to allow more people to participate more directly and more explicitly in the creation, distribution, monetization, and financialization of culture. I mean, there's still, but, but Santi, the issue is like, the, yes, there is always going to be ways that you can exploit that. But the question is, is better to have a thousand musicians who have a lot of money and then millions who have nothing versus a million artists who all make a living wage and can create their art, mm -hmm. um, but maybe fewer super superstars. Yeah. I guess what I'm hearing you say, which I think is an interesting point. I haven't thought about it that way is that the, the, the key linchpin here is that you have perhaps capital is perhaps more accessible in this world because you have untethered capital markets and that empowers these micro creators to have a bigger say on culture and what gets pushed perhaps in a more organic way. Whereas before it was Kellogg's telling you that you had to have breakfast and all of a yeah, sudden I mean, organic and organic, I think again is that's in the eye of the beholder. That's incredibly it's very subjective. subjective. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's why it's difficult to make absolute statements on that. And I think a lot of times the people that object the most to the commodification of cultural capital, right. Which is 
like inherently a trend of financialization is like these things get commodified. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Well, for the gatekeepers, that's a bad thing, right? Because they become less and less relevant because you no longer need their expertise. That's why I think NFTs make people so angry. Yeah. Like NFTs yeah, was, make people yeah. viscerally angry, just like crypto makes finance people viscerally angry. Because imagine you've spent your whole life working to get to this point where you get to gatekeep culture. And all of a sudden, there are all of these cultural movements that are getting created. There are all of these moments in fashion, in art, in sports that are getting created outside of your sphere of influence. Yeah. That's infuriating. Like people hate loss of control. Change is very threatening. And so um, again, you know, I think that's part of the, the exciting thing here is like, okay, we're going to have new local points of control, but we can also enable all these like really niche subculture things that haven't scaled well before to actually scale and find bigger audiences potentially, or at least be able to create more value or sponsor more creative capital to, to exist. So is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? It's difficult to say. I think it depends on where you sit. If I'm a legacy brand or if I'm involved in the business of gatekeeping, then it's a bad thing. If I'm yeah. a consumer, right, unsure. Um, and if I'm a creator, I think it's a, a good thing. I think it just really depends on where you sit. Again, this is why I go back to markets. I'm just a girl who wants to trade cultural capital and size. So yeah, I don't need True to get to it. Name, DJ, if DJ I if spaces. I can if I can trade it, I'm into it. So again, there and, and that's by the way, that's what people in the world of finance do, right? Like I don't care if it's Apple or if it's Tesla or whatever. I'm not trading, I'm not emotional about trading my book. And again, as cultural capital grows, you're gonna see the presence of more and more arbitrageurs who are not emotional about the cultural capital trade. They trade, they just trade based on trends. Anyways, hopefully that makes sense. It's, <laughs> no, I always feel like such a loser talking about these things because I think they're really exciting. Yeah. People are like, this is not exciting at all, <laughs> but I think it's super cool. I think it's great, Meltem. Giddy up, as you said in your post. I think it's gonna be- yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, but like, look, this is, again, read sci-fi. I have a website, meltemdemirers.com, sci-fi reading list on it really good shit on there. Um, Sci-fi is like such a, a great, I don't read nonfiction anymore because honestly, most nonfiction books are just like blog posts with 300 pages added to, <laughs> to, to sell books, like just make it a blog post. Um, but science fiction is great because I think sci-fi writing has always been a way for us to like articulate our hopes and, and fears as a society. So a lot of sci-fi books are sort of a forward look at what might happen if we extrapolate technological trends, societal trends, cultural trends forward 10, 20, 50, 100, 1,000 years, or set them in different universes with different rules, different cultures. So I think it's actually a really interesting way to lens through which to view what we're doing. And a lot of what we're doing now right, has been written about by various sci-fi authors over the last five or six decades. Any any favorite sci-fi books? Oh, I guess you have that list, but any any one book that folks should read, maybe outside of the like obvious, like the Snow Crash or like the... Yeah. Like, oh. Yeah, yeah. I don't mm. even think Snow Crash is that like great of a book. Um, Hyperion Cantos by Dan Simmons. Incredible, incredible book. All right. Yeah, it. it's based on, it's like a derivative of Keats's Canterbury Tales, but it's a really cool book about um, basically sentient AI that's modeled after Keats, the, the poet, um, 
And this, it's in this universe that's like controlled by this AI, but nobody recognizes it. And there's this robot that comes from the future called the Shrike that like kind of super cool book, read it. It's really weird. The other one that's amazing is um, The Quantum Thief by Hani Ranshwami. I think that's how I say it. Um, yeah, very, very good book as well. Um, you know, the question is, what if time was an asset that you could trade? Hmm. That's interesting. That's very scary. cool concept. <laughs> We're gonna uh, have to bend the laws of, of physics for that one, but anything you, is possible if we dream it. Right? You are a nerd in the finest sense of the word, uh, and I love that you're betting on culture. And thank you for uh, teaching Santi me how to do it. This has been an awesome chat. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, if anyone has any questions, DMs are open. Um, I'm always happy to talk shit and. Obviously, tell me what I am getting wrong because there are a lot of things I don't understand. Preach. I'm just a simple woman who wants to trade culture inside. <laughs> a Dijon princess at heart, and and the best one out there, guys. So go go and follow Meltem. <laughs> high priestess, pure entertainment and high quality content. So <laughs> thanks, guys. Uh, no, Meltem, thanks for coming on. We'll, we're gonna have to have you on soon. Yeah, yeah you too. Men of culture, all three of us own crypto dick butts. Trying, there trying to go. do what we can. <laughs> people, people of culture. <laughs> Amazing, thanks, Thank guys. You. On the other side. <laughs>